To another episode of the Reality Dysfunction. My name is Todd Morales. And I'm Alex Janish. We're here at the France Fanon Community Strategy Center in Prescott, Arizona. And today we have with us Taria Cole. Taria is the program manager of a harm reduction program overseeing outreach workers at Sonoran Prevention Works. Sonoran Prevention Works is an advocate in Arizona for people affected by drug use. Taria, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. Thanks <laughs> for having me. We're glad you're here. Tria, there's an opioid epidemic that is sweeping the country every day. Countless people die from overdoses. And it's not just happening here in Arizona. Uh, it's happening everywhere. Um, maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit about Storm Prevention Works and why the work that you guys are doing is so important. Sure, absolutely. Sonoran Prevention Works has been around in the community for quite quite some time in one arena or another. It hasn't been what it is today for very long. We all got to quit our day jobs and start doing this for a living in 2017. But before that, it was a completely volunteer-run collective that has waxed and waned through many different stages. It started out as a few friends sitting around a kitchen table wondering why people who inject drugs that contract hepatitis C were not tracked in Arizona and how that was really disappointing to us as a community. And I mean, it has really grown from there. We've done a lot of outreach and parking lot, lots of methadone clinics and supported a lot of other grassroots organizations that started out with a guy on a bicycle handing out syringes. We've done a lot in the community that hasn't looked like what it does today. We're an organization that is strongly grounded in harm reduction and doing advocacy in our community for people who use drugs. And whatever that looks like, a lot of that looks like working with families and other community entities, but it also a lot of times looks like what is on the streets and doing that street outreach, which is what I am now focused on. So we have only had our overdose prevention program for a lot of years. And um, now we're starting this new program. So our overdose prevention program that's been around has been a lot of us working in the communities, but also working with professionals. And a lot of the work we've done with professionals has been to talk to them about overdose prevention, but to also really try to convince them that harm reduction is beneficial and that there is a therapeutic value to it. And to explain to them how using take-home naloxone programs can benefit their clients therapeutically 
and to kind of expand their viewpoints on harm reduction in that way. And now my new program, I basically just get to do that. I don't have to convince the professionals anymore. I've been developing a program where we're actually going to be working with folks one-on-one from a harm reduction model, which is super exciting. And it's been really fun. It's very different from um, anything that I've done developing a direct services program, but I'm learning a lot. Could you tell us what harm reduction means? Sure, yeah. There's a lot of different ways to approach that. And I've been doing interviews and I've gotten some really amazing answers from some of the candidates when I asked them that. And I'm not going to sound as good as them, I don't think. But a lot of people, originally we would talk about harm reduction, like meeting people where they're at. And that was kind of harm reduction's tagline, but it's grown and and morphed a lot since then. And I don't like to use the term meeting people where they're at because I believe that using that term insinuates that they're in some sort of a lower position than me. And I absolutely disagree with that. So instead of thinking of it as meeting people where they're at, I think of it as an all-inclusive, all-loving, caring Just whatever somebody needs, really like believing in humanity. And I just came from the National Harm Reduction Conference. And a lot of what we talked about in New Orleans was that harm reduction really has turned into a movement. And it is based in a lot more than just people who use drugs now. And we've always been really firmly grounded in people who use drugs having deserving all of the same health care, all of the same human rights, all of the same privileges that other members of society have, and that the criminalization of a behavior is ridiculous. And ob- if it's not obvious, we've there's been a lot of inclusion of sex work in that. A lot of what I heard at the conference this year was, are we using harm reduction on ourselves? You know, how can we use harm reduction in our personal lives and in our professional lives and not just with the folks that we would like to to use harm reduction with? So not just using it with people who use drugs. And so that has been really beneficial for me in developing this new program. A lot of what harm reduction is, is really meeting those basic human needs and affirming to folks your life matters no matter what your behaviors are and you deserve the same health care and the same benefits and the same access to what you need as the rest of society whether you choose to do what I think you should do or not and it's really recognizing those internal bias that we all have beyond just cultural competency or any other bs that we might be required to look at and really challenging myself like yeah when I think I'm helping somebody is it actually grounded in what they are asking for is it really grounded in a people first approach and is it really grounded in what will work for them and it seeks to look at people as individuals rather than shoving them in boxes which is what we do a lot of times um, with people who use drugs not just Theoretically, but literally. Yeah. So one of the things, I know that we've had numerous conversations about harm reduction, and I thought that one of the things that I heard you say once really helped bring it into focus for me was the whole idea of seatbelts as harm reduction, that regulations on work sites that keep workers safe, that these are forms of harm reduction 
and that, you know, we do this all the time in our society, but that when it comes to things like drug use, we don't. And then we try to blame the person who is using drugs. And this sort of leads me back to one of the things that I wanted to ask you about. You had said when you first started talking, why not track those things? The work that Snorm Prevention Works is doing is, is important. I mean, you're forcing a public health conversation and just wondering, you know, why? Why do you think that it just doesn't seem important to people? It's a really interesting concept in the state of Arizona, what you're saying. And I can't really tell you why, because I don't know. I do know that it's a lot easier to not fund things if we don't track them. But I also know that we've gotten a lot better in this state. And I think that that's important to identify, especially with overdose. We've gotten a lot better with overdose. We've gotten a lot better with HIV. We can show because of the way that we are tracking data with folks that, that contract HIV and also folks that are HIV positive in the community that inject drugs, they're not receiving the same care as other populations like men who have sex with men or other risky sexual behaviors. If there's injection drug use involved, we can show through data now that they are not being linked to care, the warm handoffs are not happening for some reason, that they're not getting the medications, that their viral loads are not being suppressed, and that their viral loads are not under 50, So, which means that they're un, uh, undetectable, which means that it's untransmittable. We're allowed to say that out loud now. So the point is that we can show a lot more data than we used to be able to, which is awesome. I don't know why things have been so bad, but I do know, and I can pretty confidently stay, say that in the state of Arizona, there are a lot of people fighting really hard to get more data, not just in the HIV realm, not just in the hepatitis C realm, but in the mental health community, in the DCS community, in the incarceration community, in all the communities. There are a lot of people that do want to see that data so that we can make changes. So there, there are a lot of things shifting, but I absolutely know that we could do better. And, and I, I don't know why it's so horrible. I definitely think that it's a pretty commonly known thing that if you don't have the, the numbers, then you don't have to put any funding into it. I don't know if that's where we're at anymore, though. I think it's more like, oh, we should track that. Oh, we should track this. I, I think that there's some convincing we still have to do with certain things. I can't help but think that the attitudes that people have towards this type, this particular type of drug use are changing because of the way that opioid-based painkillers have been prescribed over the last 10 years. And it's not just confined into like, you know, a certain segment of the population that you have all these people now who have been taking these, these pain pills for years. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, okay, we have to stop this. And then it seems like there's an explosion of overdoses. You know, I mean, Myself, right. this this fall, three young people that I've known since they were, you know, little kids, I mean, all in their mid-20s have died from opioid overdoses. And I believe that there was fentanyl that was involved in this, right? They were not using over-the-counter 
drugs. Before that, you know, two of my very dear friends within the last couple of years have both overdosed on opioids. Well, I think there's a lot of different things happening yeah. in what you just said. And I think the first part of it, going back to using harm reduction in other areas like seatbelts and safety precautions and really figuring out if dangerous things are going to happen, how do we reduce the harm? Going back to that basic concept and why it's so different with people who use drugs, I think it's pretty obvious that there's an underlying stigma that exists in our society that if people are choosing to do these behaviors and that they're against the law, that they deserve to be punished by whatever means are natural consequences or unnatural consequences. So I think that even though a lot of times what we say in the community is substance use disorder is a mental illness, it's categorized in the DSM-5, and we know that there's certain criteria that need to be met in order to have substance use disorder, but we're still criticizing this community for a mental illness. That's one aspect of it, but I think that it's so much deeper than that because there are lots of folks that use drugs that do not have substance use disorder. And I have to use that defense a lot of times with certain communities that are not willing to believe that it's okay for people to use drugs unless they have a mental illness. But there is a large community of people that drink alcohol socially and like it helps them. And maybe they're not on other medications because they drink some wine or have some beers after work. But for some reason... When we look at drugs, it's extremely different. And, you know, alcohol is one of the most damaging to the body drugs that exists. So, it's yeah. Pretty, it's pretty damaging overall. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it, it's it, dangerous, damaging. Yeah. I mean, and without getting into too much more detail on that, I just want to point out that there is the substance use disorder aspect of it. And then there's also this recreational use of drugs. Right. And so folks across the board are receiving consequences that maybe they don't deserve. And the beginning of the harm reduction movement in this country was when people were dying from HIV, from contracting HIV, from dying of complications of AIDS. And when we figured out as a society, or when I think it was actually France figured out that it was blood that, was, that people were contracting this from, blood, semen, vaginal fluids, and... I don't know if that was the time that they figured out breast milk or not. When we figured out that it was these fluids, there were folks in the communities that literally just started scooping up condoms and syringes and hit the streets right. because just like seatbelts, it made sense to them that they weren't going to say, great, we figured this out. Now we're just going to stop getting high and, and having sex. <laughs> So I feel Sorry. like it's no, it's fine. It's I know just it's a, not funny, but it is funny, yeah. and it, but it's also this interesting. So um, in Arizona, we still don't teach comprehensive sexual education in our schools to prevent sexually transmitted infections and diseases. So to think about why do we have such heavy stigma on people who use drugs? Well, if we don't start addressing things from a harm reduction model with sexual behavior, right, right. then how are we... So I'm not saying well, we need comprehensive sex education in order to get to this part of it. Of harm reduction. Right, yeah. to get to, the to using harm reduction on people who use drugs. But I am saying that this underlying stigma that says, well, just don't do behaviors. I mean, I know lots of people that drink and drive yeah. that feel the same way 
about harm reduction as folks that think that people who drink and drive deserve to die. So it's like this really confusing moral issue that really doesn't even need to be a moral issue because guess what? We all do risky behaviors. Some of us are more privileged than others and that we have defenses against those risky behaviors. And then another thing that I wanted to say about what you said was that I do believe that the opioid epidemic is disproportionately affecting a certain group, and that is white people. And I think it's important to bring that up just to say out loud that it's getting a lot of media attention, but there are a lot of people dying of meth use, of alcohol use, of cocaine use, of other drug use, and there are absolutely no measures being put in place for them because it's disproportionately affecting other communities. I would love it if we could just serve all of these communities of folks that are dying because we are putting so much effort into figuring out the opioid epidemic. Guess what? In Arizona, it's two and a half people a day of opioids and one and a half of other drugs. Wow. So, I mean, I get that opioids, yeah, they're they're tilting the scale, but it's not by very much. And if you were to go to certain rural communities and on the tribal lands, you would find out that they're not really caring about the opioid epidemic A lot of those rural communities, they have a really big meth problem and they have a really big cocaine problem and they have a really big fill in the blank problem. Alcohol problem is a big one. So I think that um, it does disproportionately affect white people. And that is one of the big reasons why it gets so much media attention. And it's frankly, it's a bummer. I think something that's interesting that you use and I think your whole organization does this, but people who use drugs as opposed to like drug users. And I think that's really important to concentrate that these people are individuals. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to like why you do that. Sure. Yeah. We do a lot of things in our organization to try to perpetuate the reduction of stigma for people who use drugs and anybody affected by drug use in the community. And that's one of the ways we do it is by using people first language. And we try hard not to criticize or correct people that choose not to use that language unless we're 100% sure that they're open to that critique, but really moving away from addict, um, moving away from drug user, moving away from consequences of addiction, moving away from certain terms that really put somebody in a box is important to us because um, people who use drugs, like you said, are people first and they deserve all the same respect as any other type of person. And yes, maybe they do have a substance use disorder, but maybe they do not. It's not up to me to go, oh, well, you must be ADHD or you must have bipolar. I think that sometimes those are thrown around, too, in a very inappropriate way. But at Snore and Prevention Works, we really believe that we need to model certain behaviors. And as a result of that, we can lessen the stigma. That's frankly what the Take Home Naloxone program is. It's a way of almost not sneaky. I wouldn't use the term sneaky. But while getting on board with something that everybody agrees with, that these folks don't deserve to be dead, and maybe not everybody agrees with that, but the majority of our population in Arizona agrees with that, we're able to perpetuate this culture shift of reducing stigma. And it is working. It is 100% working. We see it and hear about it all the time in communities that have huge stigmas against people who use drugs. 
we hear about those shifts happening all the time. So I 100% believe it's working. So you mentioned naloxone a second ago, and I know that students here at Prescott College have spent a lot of time making naloxone kits, hundreds of them. Possibly thousands. Possibly thousands. Yeah, they're busy little beavers when it comes to naloxone kits. But could you tell us about naloxone, the work that Sonoran Prevention Works has done around making sure that that this antidote to overdose um, is available to people in the public and sort of the battle that that has gone along, you know, with making that uh, possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The overdose prevention program is our baby. It's what gave us the ability to all quit our day jobs and start doing this for work. And it's pretty exciting to watch how the program's shifting now that we have more credibility in the community and we don't have to run around convincing people to take our naloxone anymore, which is amazingly helpful. (laughs) But uh, our take home naloxone program is not original. It it was, it's the whole program is based on a booklet on the harm reduction coalition's website that is freely available for anyone called how to start a take home naloxone program or something really simple. And our executive director, Haley Coles, has put an extreme amount of work into it. It's not to say that, that we, there hasn't been a, a lot of work put into it by other members of the community. Uh, we had to get laws changed in 2015, I believe, was the beginning of the law changes. And I don't have all of the HBs and statute changes. They're on that sticker on that naloxone kit hanging on your wall. But... In 2016 was when the major shift happened and take home naloxone was, we, we got the, the green flag. We were able to start distributing. So we had to wait a lot. There, had, there was a lot of red tape to go through. A lot of rules have to be written. As you all know, when something gets written into a bill passes, it doesn't automatically mean we can just start. The Board of Pharmacy had to create their rule. We had to find a doctor to write us a standing order. And Haley and Sonoran Prevention Works in the community, all the volunteers went through a lot. There were a lot of mothers involved in that process who have lost people to overdose. And it's yeah. really important to, to recognize. And I'm sure there were fathers, too. I guess the ones that I met were mainly mothers. But I'm sure that there were both parents involved in making sure that the, the government entities knew how important this was to the community, that this was something that not just people who use drugs wanted, which should frankly be enough, but that the larger community needed. Once the, the law was passed, there I think there's a photo on our website and it, you, know, you can Google Naloxone, Arizona, and you can see the governor signing it and Haley is standing behind him along with some other volunteers, including some parents that have lost their children to overdose. So naloxone is one of the safest drugs on the market. And that was one of the things we started doing, you know, whatever, nine, eight, nine years ago when we were just sitting around our kitchen table was calling pharmacies to go, do you have naloxone available if somebody had a script? And they were like, you're crazy, you know? No, we would have to order that. And why would anybody even get a script for naloxone? That doesn't make sense. So we've come a long way. We've come a really long way from that. A lot of the work that we do now is educating the community on the benefits of naloxone. We don't even have to do that as much 
as we had to in 2017. We think really we're trying to shift the overdose prevention into being more community focused now, just a little bit less focused on the professional community because we feel like a lot of professionals at this point are convinced and a lot of the work that we've done up to this point has been extremely successful in that. So take home naloxone, it is, like you said, the antidote to overdose. It literally makes folks start breathing again when they stop breathing from an overdose. It blocks the opioid receptor, and for a short period of time, it's a fast-acting short drug. So <clears throat> they will at least feel high again in about an hour and a half, but it, they will be breathing. And so we've spent a lot of time distributing naloxone into the community. I think it was a few months ago we hit our 100,000 mark of 100,000 kits distributed into the community. That's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. And I think we found out that we're one of the largest distributors of naloxone in the country, at least through take-home programs like the one we have, that we ask for as much naloxone as some places that have much larger populations than us. I don't think that we have an official stat or an official source of that stat, but I'm pretty proud of the work we have done and that we continue to do as an organization, but we couldn't do any of it without the volunteers. Like you said, it would not have been possible. The volunteers at Prescott College and um, other colleges around the state, along with the parents, along with the professionals, along with the other community members, and most importantly, the people who use drugs. Because if they were not, if they didn't feel safe enough, if they didn't take our naloxone, then we would not have nearly as many reversals as we do. Because I think it's around between 80 and 83% of reversals are done by people who use drugs. So if we're not getting it into their hands, it doesn't really matter. That's staggering statistics. But it makes sense though. I yeah. mean, who do people get high with? Other people who use Other drugs. people who get high, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they're the ones around in an overdose, you know? And even if a family member's in the next room, it's pretty rare to meet a family that can be like, hey, I'm gonna go get high, will you watch my kid? So usually people are getting high in secret. And so, yeah, it's really important that the folks who use drugs have access to naloxone. Why do you think that's so hard for people to understand? You know, you were talking about destigmatizing these things and not using words like addicts and stuff. Why do we essentialize people in these ways that, well, why do you think, not we as people, but the state of our society, and it sounds like this is definitely changing, essentializes people as just one thing? I think it makes it easier for us as a society to accept death, to accept betrayal, to accept people doing things to us that we might not like if we put them in a box, like using the term addict. I think it goes back to that stigma that we were talking about and goes back to it's difficult to change somebody's mind. And we really think about like how long it took for folks to recognize that alcoholism was an actual mental illness that is now called alcohol use disorder, right? We, it's a substance use disorder that takes certain criteria to meet that is a chemical imbalance in their brain. I think that in the same way that that was really difficult and still is difficult for people to accept, the same thing happens with people who use drugs. It, it soothes something in their mind where they're like, 
well, this is just maybe an inherently bad person, or they have this really derogatory term that they can label somebody with. Uh, and also just really the way that our society has been groomed institutionally. There's so much stigma that's underlying the surface that is rarely ever challenged yeah. or put to the test. You know, and we talk about it all the time in our trainings, but things like food stamps, things like access to financial aid, things like access to hepatitis C treatment, yeah. medical care, things that are being denied to people who use drugs on a regular basis that it's not challenged, it's not questioned. We've been conditioned to believe these things, which is part of that challenging myself and my internal bias constantly because there's so much that exists that there's no way that I could not have these bias growing up in the society that I've grown up in. I think that's kind of what you're speaking to, right, Alex? How do we start those conversations? I mean, if people have been thinking these ways their whole lives, like how do we ask them to change this? Well, I mean, I think Especially we've been, or <laughs> you know, yes, yeah, went to school for that. one person at a time and really reminding folks in the professional community that they have a practice is helpful because I think that that is important. And does that work on everybody? Absolutely not. Uh, a lot of people are really offended by our theories that harm reduction is a therapeutic intervention and that it has a therapeutic value to it. And it's pretty simple to break down how that works, but we're just not going to reach all the folks. But I definitely believe one conversation at a time, talking to people about it. Anytime that I've done a training or done any sort of public speaking engagement where somebody has been upset with me or challenged me, I really have encouraged them to talk with me afterwards. Let's unpack this. Let's talk about this later. I want to talk to you about this issue that you have with the things I'm saying and really meaning that and being okay with the person being upset at me. I think that that's really a lot of times we're meeting other community members where they're at, uh, at least as much as we're encouraging folks to do that with people who use drugs. So I think it's really important to recognize that we all grew up with these bias and also that, you know, how scary is it to think about that? If I have a child or a loved one that uses drugs that I've tried a tough love technique on. And then I'm listening to this recording of us talking about how, well, maybe tough love isn't the best solution. Maybe it is killing people. And, and to hear somebody say that, and maybe I have a loved one that has died. And for me to be like, how dare you challenge what I did? And, you're, and, and they might think I'm trying to place a blame on them, which I'm absolutely not. I'm just trying to say, let's recognize as a society that we have a lot to learn from and that this needs to be a seriously multi-pronged approach. So, and one of the approaches has to do with getting rid of that stigma, that one-to-one -one person stigma and challenging what could happen if we meet these folks' basic needs. And then going back to our new program, that's what the harm reduction outreach workers really seek to do is to go to people who need their basic needs met and just meeting them without asking them to check any more boxes, yeah. to join any more programs, to pee in a cup, to be abstinent, to do this, to do that, to show up to this many groups. We would just like to serve the community. And frankly, my hope is through that to show that folks can get well, whatever that looks like to them, can get better, can reduce the harm, can leave 
lead purposeful, meaningful lives without needing to fit in our boxes. Because guess what? Somebody who's not hungry and doesn't need shelter for the evening is probably not going to rob you. It's possible that somebody... <laughs> Unless they're already a billionaire. And then they're most certainly going to rob you. Don't get me started <laughs> on that. Right? So when we think about like these crimes that a lot of folks who use drugs are committing, yeah. they're usually crimes, of in survival. quote, of survival. Yeah. So w w our goal is to try to take away the need for those crimes and then see what happens. See if they're able to make po any positive change in their lives that will help them, whatever that looks like, right. you know. It might look like they never stop using drugs, but that they don't have to rob people anymore. That would be nice. It might look like getting into some form of treatment, whether it's abstinence or medically-based treatment. But it might not look like any of those things. The, the real goal is to not have a goal of what that's going to look like and then really see what happens. And also not dig them deeper into a hole, like the court fines that come from camping or like, you know, stealing or being arrested with drugs, you know, it, it just makes it harder and harder to not have to keep doing that. Thank you. Yeah. It's also terrifying. And, you know, the biggest challenge for me in my mind is not <laughs> how, do, how do we serve this community? It's how do we navigate the system? <laughs> That is the most terrifying thing for me, but it's also pretty revolutionary and reaching out to other harm, redu harm reduction entities throughout the country. A lot of folks, this is the, the new frontier. This is us figuring out how to work within the system and bring these harm reduction services to folks. Because like you said, there's an epidemic. There are people dying and, and we need to look at what other approaches we can make besides the traditional ones seems so obvious to me it seems like something that you know we, we should be doing and it's crazy that there needs to be like a movement bringing all these people together to even think about the most convenient and obvious way to like support people it's pretty basic psychological concepts if you think about the hierarchy of need mm -hmm. how are people going to do x y and z if they're hungry like we were kind of half joking about earlier how are they going to do x y and z if they miss their child so much they're suicidal how are people going to make any changes if they or even like conceptualizes what changes they need to make how are they going to do any of those things if their basic needs aren't met so yeah you're right i agree 100 percent. so it's it's not very difficult to argue that point well, everybody in our society should be involved in this with, everybody should be. Yes. with what's going on. And most yeah. people are, whether they know it or not, involved yeah. by what they do or what they don't do. Yeah. So it's kind of like most things in life, even if we're doing nothing, we're making a decision to be on one side or the other. Yeah. And I mean, coming back to that multi-pronged approach, it's really interesting to me to see what a lot of people cling to. Take, for example, the DEA regulation of pharmaceutical medications. That is part of the multi-pronged approach that happens to be shifting more people to use pills that they buy off the streets, right. which are then not actual pills, but pressed pills that are laced with fentanyl. And so kind of challenging, what, are we, what is this fear we're instilling in doctors to where they're not prescribing to folks that they that actually are needing the medication and then those folks are turning to the streets and dying and it's extremely shocking to communities when they're like how did that person die of an overdose 
they must have overtaken their medication and we're finding out that it's actually things that they're buying on the streets. So it's just something to think about, like when we think about the multi-pronged approach, what are we doing? So then what are we combating that approach with? More supply and demand, more regulation and people thinking that maybe mandatory minimums are a good idea, which is terrifying because we all know how well mandatory minimums work. Yeah, they don't work. Right. It's terrifying. So it's really thinking about what are you doing or not doing? Is there something you're clinging to that you feel like is something that you're proud of that you've done to help with the epidemic of overdose? And whatever that is, is it something that you can research and make sure is actually an effective approach, is actually doing benefits to the community? Or is there something that you're clinging to that makes you believe that these people who people who use drugs are getting what they deserve. And let's, yeah, and if that's true, let's talk about that. Because guess what? You're not going to believe that if it's somebody you love. And unfortunately, that's what it takes for a lot of people. There's There's a doctor in Arizona that does a lot of education around medically assisted treatment. And I witnessed him doing a presentation in, in Cottonwood, which was a very challenging place for him to do a presentation. And one thing that he really adamantly continued to drive home to those folks was, if it is your little Johnny or little Jane, you are not going to care how long they need to be on this medication. It is going to change everything about it. And until then, there is no way that I'm going to be able to convince you of that. And really challenging folks to think about it from a different angle. If I need to be on blood pressure medication, how long? You know, what's the plan? Well, do I want to live? Yeah. You know, so really thinking about it from the perspective of, if I had somebody I loved, what would I do to help them stay alive? Well, I think that makes me think about how if we're not giving people access to health care and the stripping away of the Obamacare and all those things, like senators are inherently implicit in the death of these people if they can't afford these things. I don't know if you want to agree with me on that. It doesn't look like it. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to agree with anything you don't want to. (laughs) I don't, I just don't know if I should... You know, and it's very interesting the climate in Arizona is so many folks believe so many different things that us as an organization, we do have to be extremely careful. I have to be extremely careful because I have stepped in muck quite a few times and pissed a lot of people off in ways that I had no idea I was even doing it. And I think that's one of the challenges for me and where I've grown a lot personally is to really be able to go back to people and say, I was wrong. You know, I shouldn't have said it this way. How can we move forward from here since we both care about these communities? So I think there's certain things that are really easy for me to speak to and other things that are not as easy. I do agree that helping people who use drugs navigate the healthcare system is a challenge and trying to find them things like treatment for hepatitis C or figuring out how to get them the linkage to care when they're HIV positive that they do feel comfortable enough to continue to engage in is something that we're going to be running into because the the numbers show that and that it's definitely going to be something that I am going to be dedicated to changing somehow. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I would like those folks to have access to life-saving medications for more than just overdose. And it's cheap, too. Like, I, I think about the EpiPens, how they're so expensive without uh, insurance or whatever. But you all are giving out naloxone for free. I just think that's really beautiful. Well, and so, but somebody is paying for the naloxone, and that is important to recognize that we believe that 
people should have access to any life-saving medication and that we have found funding for naloxone, but we would encourage anybody to find funding for EpiPens if they can, because I think that it's important that folks have access to all of those life-saving medications and, and not just naloxone. And, you know, hepatitis C treatment and HIV treatments are definitely not as cheap for sure, but we still think that folks should be able to access those, not just to save their own lives, but to help prevent the transmission of the, those illnesses to others, which ultimately will cost the taxpayers more money. So there are multiple ways to do that. Obviously, the medication is one way, and, and another way would be syringe access programs, which I just feel like I need to say out loud. Could you maybe speak to what that means, syringe access program? Anybody in the community having access to clean syringes is what a syringe access program is. So years and years ago, me and my buds went to Tucson and kind of hung out at LifePoint when it had a location in the health department in Pima County. And we got to witness all walks of life coming in and being able to dispose of their syringes for free, which is not cheap, and have access to clean syringes, which is not cheap and sometimes completely unaccessible to communities. A lot of those communities are people who use drugs, but there are also other folks in the community that are stigmatized, that are unable to receive those syringes that they need for health care. So we saw lots of people who use drugs, but we also saw a lot of diabetics. Yeah. We saw a lot of older folks that are on medications that are maybe on fixed incomes that don't have the ability to pay for clean syringes or syringe disposal that they need to get their medications. So uh, we saw all kinds of folks in the community coming in. Now we have multiple syringe, not we as in Sonoran Prevention Works, but Arizona has multiple underground syringe access programs operating under the radar, um, and some of them with agreements from local officials, but it operates in a gray zone right now. And what better incentive? And I know that government entities hate that word incentive, but really, if you want to get in a lock zone, to, to folks who use drugs, and if you want to engage people in any service, fill in the blank, what better way to do it than to give them access to the things that they are unable to access, period. And when we think about any, any behavioral issues that are criminalized, thinking about that is, is really the preventative tool that's needed to lower the strain on our taxpayers, to lower the mental health strain, to lower the death, to lower the, the grief in our community and the challenge to our family members and the challenge to our law enforcement and the challenge to the judges and the judicial system really lowers the strain on the whole community. But in the meantime, these folks will continue to operate in the gray area. I've heard you talk about your own journey through this a little bit and I was just wondering if you wanted to tell us about how you came to this work because I mean it's clear that you're very passionate about what you're doing. <laughs> yes, that can be a really really great thing and it can also be to my detriment. For, for those sure. of you who can't see Teresa, she's literally <laughs> bouncing in her chair while yeah. she has I'm turning red. Yeah. I'm turning red right now because yeah. that is it's it's my favorite and least favorite question that I get asked and 
I mean, I, I identify as a person who has used drugs uh, and it has been quite a few years since I have used drugs. And I know that that definitely makes a difference because I have access to a lot of privilege that people who currently use drugs do not have access to. But I also have spent about two thirds of my life using drugs and being treated horrifically due to that drug use. And I also identify as a person with substance use disorder. And as a result of that substance use disorder, a lot of folks did not appreciate the behaviors that I was engaging in with them and to them in, in my past. So I have a lot of personal experience, but I also have a lot of experience with wanting to do better when I was using drugs. And I think that the first thing that harm reduction did for me, and, you know, I learned about harm reduction through a, a TED talk um, by Elizabeth. I'm going to pronounce her last name wrong, but I'm going to say Pisani. And you can look her up on TED and she does a talk about, about harm reduction in a sense, but from a public health perspective, which is one perspective. But I just felt like she was explaining to me why I didn't deserve to be treated the way that I was treated all those years and why me wanting to change behaviorally was such a positive thing and that I should embrace that in my life. And even though I don't currently use drugs, I just get it. Like I get it and I, I know the struggle and I'm really passionate about changing that struggle for other folks because I might not have needed to develop substance use disorder. And maybe that's a very controversial thing to say, but from my personal experience, I believe that when I was a person who used drugs before I developed substance use disorder, there were a lot of things that happened to me that pushed me pushed me into using substances more and more and more and more. And a lot of that stemmed from past trauma that was, that was not addressed. But a lot of it had to do with the way that I was treated by society. And there were a lot of points in my journey, starting from nine years old, where I feel like there could have been positive harm reduction interventions that could have absolutely revolutionized the rest of my life. I don't regret my life. I don't regret what happened to me. I'm very grateful for my journey so far. And I love my job and I love that I am getting paid right now to sit here and talk to you about this. Um, but I also believe that we can change things and we can do better. We can do better for people who use drugs. We can do better for our community, for our society. So yes, it's definitely very personal, but it's shifted to a professional thing aspect for me because a lot of times half of what I do is bite my tongue. Half of what I do is take deep breaths and say things in my head that I don't say out loud because they wouldn't be helpful. And sometimes I need to sit around and let people explain things to me so that they can feel like the conversation went well, you know? Oh, I do know. Yeah. <laughs> and I have, I have, I'm not there yet. <laughs> neither am I obviously, but I'm learning and you know, I just, I just truly believe that as a society, harm reduction can shift us. It can change us. It can save lives and it can reduce harm quite literally and figuratively. So I feel really passionate about this. Yes, 
but I also feel like I have that character trait where I'm really loud. So I'm really lucky to have somebody in my life, our executive director, Haley Coles, that is just as passionate as me, but has this other character trait where she's really good at being quiet. Mm -hmm. So I have to channel my inner Haley quite a bit due to all of this. Uh, not that she, she has just as much passion as me, but she has this different character trait set. Sure. So I think that we work well to balance each other, but I spend a lot of time. If you see me being quiet, it's because I'm channeling Haley. I just a couple more things that I wanted to ask you about. So, cause we don't want, we don't want to take up your whole morning. Yeah. I know you got important stuff to do. Totally. Very important. <laughs> what can people do where they're at to work with this or to work on this issue? I mean, it's something that's happening all over the country is snore prevention works, a resource for people in other States. What's a good website? If you're anywhere else in the country, I would definitely, the first place we would direct you would be to the Harm Reduction Coalition's website because they have an interactive tool uh, to help you find local harm reduction agencies all throughout the country and I believe all throughout the world. I believe it's harmreduction.org, but I could be wrong. I think I'm right because somebody's nodding their head. If you live in Arizona, please use us as a tool. We are here to support the folks in the community in any way we can based in harm reduction. And that might look like a parent coming to us to unpack, like, what can I even do to help my child? Or is there something that I should be doing? Or if that's to come get some naloxone, you know, the Surgeon General has announced on the radio that just every medicine cabinet, every first aid kit in the country should just have naloxone in it. Cause why wouldn't it if it's free? Right. So come get some naloxone from us at the least, but we have a robust volunteer program. We're always trying to tweak it and change it to make it better because I think that we do get a lot of folks in the community that are really passionate and then we don't, they don't feel like we have enough for them. So we're always looking to improve that program, but we definitely offer folks the opportunity to volunteer. Uh, you can like us on Facebook. You can join our, follow our new newsletter, go to our website, spwaz.org, and sign up for our newsletter. We are planning a Arizona Harm Reduction Conference, which will be a day-long conference based in harm reduction on March 29th of 2019, and that will be in Phoenix. It's at the Black Canyon Conference Center. So I think on our website right now, you can actually sign up for updates for that as well. Get involved. There's lots of things that folks can do. What about February 4th? Oh, thank you. Yeah. Rewinding before March 29th, February 4th, we are having an advocacy day in conjunction in collaboration with uh, Addiction Haven. Addiction Haven is a community organization that does advocacy for people in recovery. And it just would make sense that we collaborate quite a bit with them. Uh, they're an amazing organization that has helped and planned this advocacy day event for years. So February 4th of 2019, we will be at the Capitol in Phoenix all day. You can sign up ahead of time. To, and I'm not sure exactly what that looks like yet, but I know that we are 
making appointments with our senators and our representatives to meet with them to tell them which bills are important to us and which ones we are for and against as a community. And so we will be doing that. There will be talking points available. There will be explanations available. Last year was my first year doing it and I felt very terrified to look at senators and and tell them how I felt. And I felt really confident after talking with folks from Sonoran Preve Prevention Works and Addiction Haven and having my talking points, having my folder, knowing how I felt about things and being able to look my senator in the eyes and tell her, I have shared needles with folks that are HIV positive and hepatitis C positive because I had no access to clean ones in the community and syringe access is important to me. That I, There is nothing to explain how powerful that was for me. And anyone in the community that has family or personal experience with that, I encourage you to go to the Capitol on February 4th and speak with your senators and your representatives about these issues and why they're important to us, why uh, they matter in our community. Because what better way to empower ourselves and others? Wow, it's... Even though the bill did not pass last year, it was still an extremely powerful adventure that we went on, and I'm looking forward to it this year. Great. That's cool. I'm looking forward to being there, too. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. I'm going to ask my senator uh, why he won't get beaten up for it. Perfect. <laughs> Do it. We should, we should all ask. We want to thank Taria for talking with us. Also, big shout out to our producer, Woody Maves, for his work on our podcast. I'm Todd Morales. I'm Alex Yonish. We are the reality just.